Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with us. Hey, let me start with this. Did you hear that story? It was a couple of weeks ago about Chinese infiltration, but impacting our last federal election. Like literally money involved. Literally, I think it was 11 candidates off the top of my head, but staff members too. Well, this is an ongoing story about Chinese interference. And I've been appalled or amazed maybe, amazed is a better word. I care about that deeply. I'm surprised how many Canadians don't seem to. But if you're one who does, if you believe in our sovereignty away from that caliber or that type of foreign interference, you have come to the right place. Because the name uh, Sam Cooper, he's the guy who did willful blindness, talking about the infiltration of China in so many aspects of our life, including the fentanyl trade and organized crime, that kind of stuff. Well, he's the one who is on this story. What again, no surprise there. One of the top journalists in this country. He is my guest. Absolutely must listen if you care about Canada and you care about our sovereignty. That's coming up on the show. We've also going to talk about rare earth minerals, with, uh, talking with Mark Martin. We've also got to talk with Ozzy Jurek. I mean, there's lots happening in the real estate market. I've got a great goofy award for you. And this is one that I almost had fun writing because it's so outrageous. I mean, I started uh, you know, a few days before we broadcast and then something else would come up, something else would come up, something else. And even if you've been following the story of FTX, I still think you're going to be surprised when you hear what's in this week's Goofy. As I say, so much else happening. We'll get to it. But first, just so you're clear, the battle over your right to share your opinions and views is under attack this week with Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez pleading with the Senate, with senators, to quickly pass Bill C-11. Quickly might be the right word, because anyone who takes a long look at this, looking at the effort to regulate legal internet content, has got to have reservations. And I want to underline that word legal. And it's been continually pointed out by experts like Michael Geist. He's Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. He's also a law professor at Ottawa U. Bill C-11 will give the government, through its appointees on the CRTC, the lawful ability to censor user content, your content. Come on, that's not a big stretch, though, or a big step from the government ordering financial institutions to freeze bank accounts because someone was suspected of supporting the trucker's convoy, not accused of anything, let alone convicted. And I got to digress just for a sec, because this can't be said often enough. There was no pushback from the big banks or other financial institutions who froze the accounts. They left no doubt that in the choice between government and your private property rights, the private property rights of their customers, their depositors, well, they chose government without a peep. And do you want to bet that's the last time? You know, look, I talk a lot about free speech, but I want to tell you why. Three main reasons. It's one of the fundamental rights that distinguishes a democracy from a totalitarian state. And personally, I don't want to live in a totalitarian state. Two, free speech is the foundation of all progress and innovation. And three, what's not generally recognized is that free speech and uncensored media is the best safeguard we have against government corruption and abuse. And by the way, I also talk a lot about it because I don't think enough people do. Simple as that. And the passing of Bill C-11, the Internet Censorship Bill, it may be too late then. Although I got to give a tip of the hat to the Senate because uh, they've refused to pass the bill at this point. Instead, they've proposed over 100 amendments. Good on them. But when it comes to free speech, there's been a huge change that's taken place over 10 years. I mean, we've got media giants 
like Facebook and Twitter, working with government agencies like the FBI to de facto censor views that the government finds unacceptable. And many for just straight political reasons, like the squelching of the Hunter Biden laptop story. And, you know, I've personally experienced social media censorship. Maybe you have too. I mean, Money Talks has been censored twice by Facebook, and of course, no explanation. You know, there's a lot of aspects to the free speech debate, but today I just want to bring back the focus of many corporations and their response to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. Now, on top of the celebrity and public bash backlash, it's reported that half of the top 100 corporate advertisers on Twitter have stopped advertising. Why? Because Elon Musk dared to say, in quotes, the reason I acquired Twitter is because it's important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence? I mean, you might want to note the uncomfortable truth that the corporations who've withdrawn their ad dollars from Twitter, they didn't have any such reaction towards the media outlets who pushed the now discredited Russiagate story for two years. No problem with the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story, as I said, or the censorship of the Wuhan lab uh, leak theory, which now has most experts saying is the most likely origin of COVID. Nope, no sign they're bothered by any of that. Not those stories, despite their profound significance. But why? Well, it's not too tough to conclude that's because it was the official government narrative. Their problem is with free speech. You better understand that. And the airing of views that question the establishment. Well, that's the bugaboo of authoritarians everywhere. One final note. Musk wants to facilitate the airing of a wide range of beliefs that can be debated in, he calls, a healthy manager without resorting to violence. Let's be very clear. The censorship crowd is doing the opposite, and I think they're actually courting violence. Come on, you know in your own personal life, do you think there's a better way of getting someone really angry than telling them to shut up? Telling them their opinions are not welcome or allowed? and throw in a little name-calling, and I don't see how anyone could be surprised at the anger that's dividing our country. And as Liberal MP for Louis Hebert riding in Quebec City, Joel Lightbound stated in the last election, that was actually the goal, in quotes, from a positive and unifying approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, to stigmatize. Well, it worked. As former Liberal Party president, and in fact, he was the longest-serving Liberal Party president in the party's history, Stephen Ledru states, Canada, in quotes, has become polarized, nasty, and barely recognizable. He goes on to say that we must return to, in quotes, the freedom to differ, to voice, to offend, and to live our lives within the law, and not some person's elite notion of what's good and bad. Well, I agree, but I'm not holding my breath. Canadians seem to be caught up in this ideological war that doesn't know compromise. And I'm a good example, by the way, though, because I got no interest in compromising on free speech. I think you've got the right to say whatever you want. I've got that right. We've got laws that cover existing uh, hate speech, for example. But I favor individual rights over the collective good when it's dictated by government. I, may, I also suspect this. This could be the essence of the new political divide. Not that old right and left, the security state versus the fight for freedom. Hey, by the way, as I said, got a great show planned for you, but I also want to remind you of this, that, uh, and I put a smile on my face when I say it, 
We're back live for the World Outlook Conference, but this weekend is the end of the early bird tickets. So Sunday night, that's when it's over. So the early bird ticket uh, and all the benefits you get with that. So if you're thinking about coming, and I hope you are, February 3rd and 4th at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver, as I say, live in person. Lots of selfies are going to get taken there. Why? Because I'm bringing the good-looking Victor Adair. I'm bringing Ozzy, but I'm bringing Tony Greer. I'm bringing uh, Greg Weldon's going to be with us. Oh, the list is a long one. Kevin Muir's going to be with us. It's going to be fabulous, and I'm really looking forward to it. But again, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can get all the details. Click on end of the early bird special is this Sunday night. Take advantage of it. In the meantime, as I say, we have a fabulous show planned for you. Stay with me. Time now for the quote of the week. And maybe I'm going to start with my Jeopardy test question. Because the quote comes from Eric Arthur Blair. You know what his pen name was? Well, you probably do. It was George Orwell, obviously. Famous novelist, critic, journalist, whatever. Best known for his works, 1984 and Animal Farm. Well, the following quote is from his unused preface to George Orwell's Animal Farm. That was published in, I think, August 1945. But this didn't get published with it. They didn't use it. It was published 27 years later under the title, The Freedom of the Press, in quotes. At any given moment, there's an orthodoxy, a body of ideas of which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. It's not exactly forbidden to say this, that, or the other, but it's not done to say it. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. A genuinely unfashionable opinion and almost never given a fair hearing, either in the popular press or in the highbrow periodicals. End of quote. I can't believe that. He wrote that in 1945. Talk about being relevant today, and it's something to absolutely think about. I've been looking forward to a chance to chat with Sam Cooper. Sam has just done brilliant work when it comes to uh, the Communist Party of China's infiltration of Canada. And of course, the latest revolution, uh, revelations rather uh, with Sam talking about interference in the 2019 election. I also got to mention this, though. If you want a brilliant read, we'll read Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. I called it the book of the year uh, last May, and it certainly is. It's a, a phenomenal read and a frightening read at the same time. This is the latest escalation of that and revelations. Sam, thanks for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. And by the way, Sam, you got to know this, uh, obviously, with your work at Global News, and uh, I love the work that Terry Glavin's done on this file and a few others. You are the guys I always put forward when people criticize the media. I say a lot of that criticism is justified, but remember, there are people like Sam Cooper out there breaking stories of tremendous importance, and this is certainly the category this falls under. Maybe give me a quick uh, summation of the latest stuff. As I say, we find out that uh, money uh, coming maybe indirectly, but coming from the Communist Party of China has played a part in the last election, influencing, you know, several candidates or several uh, electoral boundary or electoral districts, that kind of stuff. Give us uh, maybe a quick rundown of that. 
That's right, Mike. Uh, over the, the course of the past year, uh, in a broad way, I've been uh, investigating and researching what is called uh, Xi Jinping's United Front Work Department and how this sprawling international agency is involved in foreign influence operations worldwide. We've learned a lot uh, in, in worldwide media reading uh, from journalists in Australia about how the uh, China's uh, uh, system of the United Front used business people, casino gamblers, uh, uh, people of, uh, from, from all backgrounds, and let's get it straight, not just people of uh, Chinese uh, origin, to infiltrate that, that country's system to the point where a senator was forced to step down a $800, uh, $800 million per year whale gambler, so-called in Australia, uh, was outed as an agent. And this was due to, uh, you know, attention on, in Australia on that issue and new laws. What I have revealed uh, in my new reports uh, stems from people within uh, intelligence communities bringing forward information to me. And uh, really their motivation was that Canada faces a deep problem like Australia, but really we're wide open. We have no foreign interference laws to tackle modern foreign interference. Again, let's stress this. This isn't just the Chinese Communist Party. It's hostile regimes, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea, even some of those countries that we, we don't see as enemies are involved in influencing our politics. But let's get back to China. What I found was intelligence reports uh, over the past few years, and especially a high-level one in 2022, alleged that uh, the Toronto Chinese consulate had routed significant clandestine fund transfers into an alleged political interference network involving uh, individuals allegedly working for China, you know, under covert uh, methods. And the, the allegation very strictly is that large fund transfers went into this network. Uh, furthermore, the intelligence that I obtained and, and reviewed showed that at least, uh, according to CSIS investigations, at least 11 candidates and 13 campaign staffers are part of this network. So I've reported on this. Uh, I've reported that uh, uh, my sources indicate this reporting was escalated to uh, senior Canadian officials, including the prime minister. And uh, really this is just part of what uh, reports to detail China's vast interference, pretty much all centered around uh, Xi Jinping's United Front, uh, the, an agency uh, that, that escalated its attacks on democracies worldwide in 2015. This is exactly what the intelligence says. And uh, I'll, I'll end my answer here by saying it's not just about election interference, covert funding. It's about uh, undeclared Chinese police stations uh, identified, we know now, by the RCMP investigating in Toronto following my reports. These escalations, these in investigations have been ramped up. And uh, I'll, I'll leave you with one more thought. Uh, on, the, on the attack on democracy side, the intelligence points to uh, not just the supporting of Beijing favored candidates, but the attacking of MPs, threats, harassment, uh, research into uh, MPs' writings if China sees them as a threat. So that's, it's just, uh, I've been, my, you know, I've been following this for a while, but this was new information that, that, that raised the alarm to just extremely, extremely concerning levels. There are people, Mike, that think that our democracy is a lot closer to the precipice than, than anyone could believe. And now that I've seen the intelligence, I, I can say that this evidence is stunning and dangerous.
I couldn't agree more, by the way. And, uh, you know, it's brilliant work that I think is just essential information. But one of the things that jumps out, Sam, at me, uh, for, for me, is that, come on, we've had warnings from CSIS that you've been chronicling, and I'm off the top of my head going back at least five years. Uh, you know, uh, the parliamentarian committee on this, on, on that, talking about Chinese threats, talking about cybersecurity, Canadian militaries talk that way. Uh, my reaction to that is, and so little has been done. And now, as you say, we've escalated into our elections, into the offices of members of parliament. That's right. Uh, another uh, first to your point that this has been reported for 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 decades, really now. And yeah, the, that's the, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and the warnings have been escalating. You're right. For about the past five, 10 years. But the, uh, you know, successive governments, we can't just blame any one government. We can't blame any one level of government. This is about uh, levels down to school boards, Mike. And uh, the warnings are very, very sharp. And yet, as my reporting showed, CSIS, our intelligence agencies, can talk and warn all they want. But they're, without a tool to prosecute this modern foreign interference, uh, our, our agencies are really at their uh, wit's end. Uh, as an economist, you know, <laughs> uh, you know the phrase, pushing on a string. Well, if you don't have laws to back up the intelligence, there's really no prosecutorial endgame. And as one of the great you know, expert uh, former CSIS officers said, hey, this isn't the, the, the old thread of the, the KGB man in a black uh, fedora and, and an overcoat. You know, this is not just about you know, industrial espionage, stealing of national secrets. It's about influence that can get close to uh, very covertly uh, controlling the mechanisms of government and having visibility into uh, our MPs, senators, uh, municipal councillors' offices. So in a nutshell, this is about other countries, Australia, United Kingdom, United States, most notably, are ramping up and already have very tough laws to expose foreign interference from these hostile regimes. And Canada really, shockingly, has little or nothing to, to prosecute. I'll, I'll, I'll hammer that point one more time. Your listeners won't believe it. But there are people on the inside in CSIS and RCMP that say, we've known about these covert police stations uh, or, you know, uh, secret Chinese police repatriation operations targeting uh, you know, critics of the regime, not just economic fugitives, running operations on Canadian soil. Our agencies have known about this for years, but some people on say, well, there's it, it could be legal. It's very hard to prosecute that activity, foreign interference. And so that's the, 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 where we are right now, looking at why does Canada not have new modern laws? Uh, yeah, and that's what jumps out at me is that I, I appreciate, and your point's so so important for people to understand. We don't have the tools to deal with this, but as you say, other jurisdictions, uh, you know, other countries have come up with the tools. Why the reticence here? Why the foot dragging? I mean, as you say, it's not like this is. I mean, the latest revelations, yes, are are, are fresh. They're telling us the the seriousness of this issue. But we've known it's been there, as you say. Why haven't we developed those rules when we at least could use a template from other countries? That, you know, I could say that it's a, it, it's a no-brainer question, but here's an, a, it, here's an example or a no-brainer answer. Uh, here's an example that hammers the point home. From my first story, former uh, BC area conservative Kenny Chu in 2021 
proposed a foreign agent registry where uh, if you're uh, in Canada and you're working covertly for another country, you uh, getting paid, you at least have to declare your interest. And Mr. Chu said that would uh, bring some transparency and protection to democracy. He wasn't going as far as the United Kingdom or Australia, where if you don't declare those types of activities and are caught, you'll go to jail. But he was on the road and guess what happened? He was, we know, he was targeted for his uh, Canada protecting bill, a private member's bill that did not pass. He was targeted by the very same actors, my sources indicate, involved in democratic political election interference through uh, WeChat's smear campaigns, criticizing him as anti-China, anti-Asian, criticizing a Chinese Canadian as being racist against Chinese uh, people. So just uh, absurd, really, Chinese intelligence disinformation operations will target Canadian parliamentarians that step up uh, to uh, uh, table modern laws. And that just shows you the other side of the threat from covert funding is covert attacks against our parliamentarians. And uh, Mike, I'm continuing to, to, to look into tips, evidence, and intelligence that, that I have and I've been told to look for along these lines. And I believe there's more shocking uh, evidence to come out. And coming back to the other point you're making about, you know, the Chinese security services, you know, have set up, what do we want to call them, police stations? I mean, they're they're boasting about literally hundreds of thousands of nationals persuaded to return on various charges. And But this is inside Canada, of course, other countries too, but inside Canada. And uh, I, I just think people either aren't aware of it, I can't believe they're complacent about it, you know, service stations in greater Toronto area, you know, come on, three of them. That's right. These are what are called, uh, you're exactly right, undeclared, quote unquote, uh, Chinese police stations. The information was already starting to come out in international reports that pointed to uh, open source findings where even in Chinese government documents, these Worldwide police stations are declared. They're said to be uh, linked to Fujian province police bureaus and under the cover of, uh, according to the, you know, the Chinese embassies worldwide of offering services uh, to, 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 to people, uh, you know, such people that might be looking for license renewals or, or things of this nature, which is just absurd. But Michael, uh, I have been, as you know, uh, in my book, I've already been looking at networks in Vancouver where we would have powerful Chinese former military or police officials uh, who happen to be, uh, you know, caught up in illegal casino investigations, who happen to appear beside consul officials, who happen to rub shoulders with Canadian politicians. These, uh, according to my, my work that hasn't come out yet, uh, you know, in the global news reports, but my knowledge, my years of research, these should be the very types of people that are involved in these networks revolving around these so-called police stations. And a key point here, these buildings are shocking, you know, that this activity of targeting uh, people from East Asia who've, who, who've immigrated to Canada to live in freedom can now be targeted by uh, covert Chinese agents on Canadian soil. It's shocking, but it's not just about buildings. It's about those networks of people uh, surrounding these buildings that, that may show up for meetings, uh, but don't really operate out of the building. As I say, 
you've written a brilliant book about this, and that's what I really want to get across to people. You've got to have a look at Willful Blinded, how a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the West, because the level of it is extensive. The latest revelations, I think, are shocking for people when you start talking about coming into the parliamentary system, uh, both as elected officials and people working in the offices. But I, I, again, I think I want to just get you, Sam, quickly to emphasize the degree that infiltration is taking place, uh, whether we're talking about drugs, uh, organized crime, uh, and the economic infiltration I'm interested in. Well, the, the latest revelations, what they showed uh, in black and white, in evidence I obtained uh, that can't be refuted, no matter who tries to refute it, this evidence uh, will stand up in court. Uh, Canadian intelligence has investigated and believes that Chinese consulates in Canada are directing large-scale transfers into Canada's political system. Again, uh, one of the pieces of intelligence said that the Chinese consulate in Toronto directed a $1 million transfer in 2014 to arrange fake protests around something called the Confucius Institutes that were uh, seeking a deal with the Toronto District School Boards. And your listeners may ask, why so much money to influence a, uh, a school. Well, the, the key here is that these schools, uh, according to United States State Department, uh, which involves United States intelligence and other governments worldwide, are directed by Xi Jinping's United Front Work Department. Again, this is the worldwide uh, agency that's involved in interference, influence, soft power, messaging, and covert intelligence operations. Uh, I also talked to Taiwan's top diplomat in Ottawa, an expert on the United Front. Uh, Dr. Harry Tseng told me the Confucius Institutes are at the highest level of these CCP infiltration and influence operations. The CCP wants the world to see them as a, as a, you know, a friendly power on the rise. And uh, as, as many researchers, I guess you can include myself in, in that camp now that have researched this for many years, would say that has been a lie of Chinese intelligence agencies that has fooled a lot of uh, sophisticated business persons, academics worldwide, and captured a lot of elites. And so that's what's going on uh, in Canada and, and around the world right now, Mike. And again, uh, this should be just a red flashing warning light. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going back. I know uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, you know, uh, Mark Grineau said our eyes are wide open, parroting what I think John McCallum, who was the ambassador to China at the time, 2017 said, uh, we want to pursue stronger ties with China, but with our eyes wide open. Well, I have my doubts. I mean, their infiltration has uh, increased, especially as uh, the latest revolutions that you've been reporting on and, and investigating, you know, right into the parliamentary system. Well, it doesn't seem to me our eyes are wide open, or at least we're not doing much about it. Well, Michael, I the thought that comes to my mind with your comment there is, again, another one of the lines that uh, in the intelligence I obtained that will stand up in court says that the CCP seeks to this is a quote, co-opt and corrupt former officials. So uh, if some people that, uh, you know, were, were pushing this, you know, deeper engagement with China line for years and taking trips and perhaps being, you know, buttered up in ways that could have been nefarious, I do believe some people's eyes are wide open, but their eyes are wide open to corruption. They're not willfully blind.
I, I'm still surprised in our, uh, our the last election campaign, the previous one, uh, you know, in those leaders debates, et cetera, nobody talks about this. And I think that's a problem. I mean, this is a, a, a lonely kind of place for you to be on global news. And I'm, I'm thrilled that they're doing that with or letting, giving you that platform and the work that you're doing. But my God, this has got to be escalated into a much higher priority really before, well, I don't want to say it's before it's too late. That could be a debate whether it already is. It just seems overwhelming. The success they've had is overwhelming. The warnings have been there. Your work has been exposing uh, some horrendous practices uh, within. And so let me finish with this, Sam. Um, are you optimistic? If we talk again, I hope we talk well before that, but let's say we do talk again in say three, four years, will we have made progress in stopping this level of infiltration from the Communist Party? Well, that, I mean, that's a brilliant question. Again, I, I, I think back to Kenny Chu, the former conservative mm -hmm. MP, who's very, very versed because he was a target. What he says is that he believes the CCP saw, this is his words, blood in the water from the 2021 election. He believes they're becoming more open and brazen. Uh, he believes that this will get worse. And I do believe we're at a pivotal moment right now where the, the threats to democracy, and I'm talking about Chinese Canadian community sources that have been contacting me saying, thank you so much for this work. If people knew how much danger the system is in, uh, there would be change very quickly. But that change, uh, it hasn't happened yet. I, I know we're, I, I'll, I'll finish by saying, you would have thought that these revelations might have led to you know, the government saying, we're concerned, we're looking at tabling a foreign interference bill. And someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't heard that yet. When I hear that is when I will think, start to be optimistic. Yeah, it erodes such confidence in the system, a, a whole range of things go through my mind why that hasn't happened yet. But I'll leave it with this, Sam Cooper, Global News, brilliant work. The book is called Willful Blindness. Go get a copy. How a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the rest. We say we care about our country. Well, this is a great place to start. Sam, you know how much I appreciate you finding time and love the work itself. I think it's incredibly important. Great. Thanks so much. I want to bring Mike Levy in with me right now. There's so much to talk about. I mean, obviously, the world's surrounded with interest rate talk, et cetera. But, Mike, there was one quote in particular uh, coming from the senior deputy governor, Carolyn Rogers, in a speech this week said, in quotes, we need lower house prices to bring the housing market back into balance. End of quote. Oh, she also went on to say this may cause stress for people who recently purchased a home with a variable rate mortgage, you think? But here's the thing. One of the things we've been saying right from the outset is that people had to understand it was the goal of the Bank of Canada's raising interest rates to bring down asset prices. Why? Because then people uh, feel less confident. They have a tendency to be more conservative in their purchasing. They reduce demand. Er ergo, inflationary pressures are also reduced. But this is the first time I remember someone's specifically from the bank at that senior level saying, hey, we want to bring housing prices down. Called it, she called it a painful squeeze. Painful being exactly her words. And Mike, it's not surprising, as you said, that they want to bring asset prices down. They want to take away some of what's known as the wealth effect. And, you know, home prices did soar after the COVID-19 pandemic and things started to come back. But interest rates were low, very, very low. And buyers just came in. 
home prices went up big time. And now sort of they've hit the wall and um, uh, particularly people with variable rate mortgages. So if Carolyn Rogers gets her wish, which she's getting, is home prices are going to come down. But as I say, these people with variable rate mortgages, uh, they're in trouble, some of them. Uh, and when I say in trouble, the fact is that um, they are at the place where they're not paying off any principal. All they're doing is having their payments go towards interest. And that can be very, very serious. Yeah. And in fact, they're not covering. I mean, the bank itself said half of the variable rate mortgages out there, are their, their payments are not covering just the interest portion because interest rates have gone up. I could have used this as my shocking stat this week, Mike, because I was blown away. We know rates have gone up, but think about this. If this was March 1st this year, I could get you a five-year variable rate mortgage at point nine percent less than one percent what is it now 4.75 percent that's a phenomenal jump and what happens is that yeah my interest or my mortgage payments didn't change just more of it went to cover the interest until we get to the point where it still doesn't even cover the interest and that's what you're alluding to the trigger point ergo i got three choices maybe four if i if i throw in sell your house but i can increase the amortization maybe from 20 to 25 years maybe i've got that choice but uh, on the other side of the coin great ante up more money every month for your mortgage payment or increase the equity portion so the loan drops but that, i think you're just right on that is going to be a problem but we're still not seeing i mean you just heard that's the goal so we're not seeing any sign Really that they, you know, they're talking a little bit about, you know, maybe this is coming to an end, but we're going to get more rate increases. We are. And just uh, apropos of what you said about Carolyn Rogers and the banks, I just want the fact our listeners should know banks are going to play ball with you. Now they are going to take what used to be principal payment and apply it to interest, but they are not, they're not coming after you for your houses, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you the interest rate uh, or the interest, and you're not going to be paying off your uh, uh, principal. You're not going to pay it off until interest rates come down and they can sort of level that out. But uh, the Bank of Canada, Mike, and the U.S. Fed, both on track to raising interest rates in December. The Bank of Canada is pulling back once again. Tiff Macklem has let it be known that they, they may only hike rates a quarter of 1% in December and then again maybe just another quarter in January. And uh the people who watch the markets uh, expect the central bank um, to uh, raise interest rates this spring to the four and a quarter percent mark. However, the U.S. Fed, um, they they have, are saying that um, they expect the federal funds rate, their rate uh, next year to be uh, somewhat higher than they had previously expected. They're going to approve a half percent or point five zero uh, increase December 13th and 14th and probably another half percent the beginning of the year. And they're talking about their rate being 5% by March. So the discussion for both becomes how high will they go and how fast or slowly will they do it? You know, it's interesting, of course, in the markets, they've been anticipating or wanting to see a pivot, so-called pivot, or at least 
a stopping of this interest rate increase, but not all economists agree with that. And I was looking at something coming out of uh, Derek Holt. He's with the Bank of Nova Scotia. He's their chief economist. He seems to be singing from a different song sheet saying, we need these increases. He thinks that they're going too soft. He thinks that it's going to be a disaster. I mean, almost his words, if they don't raise interest rates and get inflation and just stomp it down, uh, he says they're not, um, the banks, uh, the Bank of Canada is not raising uh, rates fast enough to stave off a severe recession. He says GDP is held up better than the Bank of Canada anticipated, and the economy is not yet opening any disinflationary slack, meaning supply outstripping demand. Demand is still outstripping the uh, uh, supply, Mike, and that requires a protracted period of actual GDP growth below the economy's potential GDP growth. He wants it to slow below potential. And he's saying this. Other economists at the Bank of Nova Scotia right out are disagreeing with him. He's the chief economist. He's looking back historically. He says, unless we do that, we're going to be in for a severe recession, and that's going to hurt everybody a hell of a lot more than having to just take the pain of raising rates up and getting it done. It's a broadcaster's dream. You know, I'll tell you why, Mike, because we choose subjects that impact people directly. Well, everyone recognizes this impacts them directly when we're talking interest rates, when we're talking the cost of living. And the other side, you know, so that's one of the things, big check mark. And as you just alluded to, this debate is far from over. So we'll have lots more to talk about as we go through. But in the meantime, Mike, uh, I hope you go out and have a terrific week. You too, Mike. Thanks. You know, one of the things that's blown me away over the last, well, several years is that we've talked so much about renewable energy. We've talked so much uh, about every aspect of electric vehicles, that kind of thing. And rarely did it make uh, anywhere near the top of the page when we start talking about, okay, well, how are you going to do that? Where are you going to get the materials for it, especially rare earth minerals? And, you know, we've been talking about that on this show for a couple of decades why? Because uh, these are the essentials. You can talk all you want, but you're not going to have anything without them. That's why I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Martin T. Brown. He's the pr president of Pacific Opportunity Capital. Now, Martin, uh, first of all, I appreciate you being with me, but you guys have been involved with this. Also, I speak it of, I don't want to age you and make you feel like an old guy, but come on, it's been a couple of decades you guys have been involved. Plus, Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me, Michael. Yeah, we, we started the first rarest company uh, in our office in 1999. And the first things we always had to do when we talked to people about it was explain what the heck are rare earth elements. Yeah, well, uh, let me just say, I want to give a tip of the hat of uh, a Money Talks uh, legend who sadly has passed away. But Jim Dines is the one who introduced me to your company. You know, I'm going back. It was a top pick of that. So give us a little bit of the background there. It's just kind of interesting. I mean, you know, as I say, I think Jim Dines was an absolute legend in this business and his skill was identifying these opportunities early. He was very good at identifying where the big money was going to flow. And when people realized how much rare earths were, were going to be in demand, you know, he was like, people got to get into this. And he did us a big favor introducing our company to many, many people. And it, it was fun to work with him in those days, but it's still, uh, you know, the company we built became a $500 million company. It took tw 12 years. And for this first 10 years, nobody really knew what we were talking about. So it was, it was a tough drive. 
But let's talk about rare earths. I mean, I just made a, a, a glib sort of a, a reminder. But if, if, you're, if your thing is, I think we need electric vehicles, or if your thing is we need renewables, then this should be top of mind. Because right now, we do not have the resources necessary, let alone other things like nickel and copper, etc. But you need these rare earths. And there's one country in the world that dominates, and that's China. Absolutely. And and that's so there's two problems there. One is the supply is tough because it's very difficult to find a economic concentration of rare earths in the world and very difficult to process them. Almost every deposit has a different or will need a different processing method. And most of the rare earths that we use in our computers and our microphones and our cars for batteries and all these things come out of China. So we are very, very dependent on China for rare earth elements. Your, your point there, I don't want to go uh, just skip over. And that is what a difficult area this is, because as you say, it's not like pretty much I'm going to refine copper the same way, if you know what I mean. <laughs> that, that may be a little oversimplified. But, but in rare earths, the types of deposits are so different to end up with the materials you need. That's exactly right. Like uh, one of our companies, Alianza, has a silver deposit next to a silver mine. We know what the grade is. We know how to process it. It's it's very easy to do. It's a known process. For rare earth elements, a lot of them are found in very large IOCG deposits, iron oxide, copper, gold deposits, and the rare earths come on the side. So there's three large ones of those around the world, and some of them don't even collect the rare earths because they're too hard to collect in those deposits. One of, one of the biggest mines in the world is Olympic Dam in Australia, and they collect the uranium, copper, and gold, and they have a lot of rare earths there. And I don't know if they're collecting them now or not, but they should be because their, their grade was really good. But even once you come up with a processing method to produce what's called a concentrate, where you have a pile of dirt that's high-grade rare earth elements, the next stage of refining them into the individual rare earth elements themselves is also very difficult. And a lot of that is still done in China. It's one of the only places you can send rare earth concentrates. And, and you know, the domination of China in that way, that they sort of hold the key. We can talk all we want about doing the renewable grid or doing uh, a wide uh, expansion of electric vehicles, but it stops dead if we don't get these materials. That's the point I want to make sure everyone starts with here. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, if you, everybody looks at the Wikipedia page when they look up rare earth elements and it says there's lots of rare earths in the earth's crust. And that's very true. But they're not economic quantities of rare earth elements. And there, there's a couple of uh, issues there. One is that China has flooded the market of rare earths occasionally and, and actually bankrupted one of the largest U.S. mines, the only U.S. rare earth mine in California, twice in my lifetime they've gone bankrupt. So there's all sorts of other things at play here. Um, and what, one of the stories is you don't really know what's actually going on in the rare earths market because the prices are not transparent. And if you see rare earths concentrate, I wouldn't know what it looks like. And the customs people don't. So they get shipped around the world, um, labeled as other elements. And uh, the customs guys don't really know what's coming and going uh, in and out of China or in and out of Japan in some cases, because Japan uses a lot of rare earths for, for our technologies. So there's, it's really hard to figure out what's actually going on in the market for rare earth elements. What about the investment opportunity uh, that these provide? Uh, like, and, you know, we talked, as I say, you've been involved in the investment side of this thing for 20, 20 plus years. But what about now? I mean, it seems like there is a revival. There seems like there is an acceptance. Uh, off the top of my head, I think the first time I heard our federal government talk about the need for these kinds of uh, minerals 
was in the April budget where they set some money aside. Now we're hearing it more, more so in this way, hurting out, out of the states. They have lots of environmental opposition, you know, through lawsuits, but still you're hearing it. It's, it's on the menu now. So what about opportunities in this sphere? Well, I mean, it is uh, like any exploration, there's high risk with exploration. Are you actually going to find an economic quantity of, of niobium or dysprosium or cerium? You know, um, are you going to find that? And it's tough because each there's there's 14 different um, rare earth elements and each deposit you find could have different grades of each one of those elements. And some of them are very rare and very high priced. And the other, some of them, other ones that are actually used in uh, like car batteries, um, those are, are kind of more bigger markets. They're a little bit easier to deal with, but refining them is difficult. And the government's really um, have done nothing to actually try and promote this. They, they, the junior explorers that do all this kind of work, none of the benefits that these gov- governments do filter down to them, except for maybe the, the recent thing they did with flow-through shares, where they put an extra tax credit on, on critical metals um, elements. So, you know, that's helpful. Is it going to really make Canada the best place to find and mine rare earth elements? Probably not. But without doing that, without expanding where our supply chain is outside of China, I mean, the vulnerability is obvious. I mean, I know that there's, as you said, Australia, some in Africa, some South America, but, you know, is North America going to be added on to that list? But without it, I think we've already seen the weaponization of things like oil and natural gas. So it's not a stretch to think this could be next, especially at the most critical times. There, there is a famous quote by one of the previous Chinese leaders, and I, I can't remember which one, but he, he said, well, Saudi Arabia has oil, but China has rare earths. Hmm. And that's a scary thing when somebody says something like that. Yeah, when they recognize it in that way. Wow. Yeah. I, I, again, as I say, I, I mean, people are, have to make their own determination. My determination is it's not what I think should happen or anything. It's, it's, it's just observing what will happen. So when you do get the governments recognizing the necessity here to expand production, uh, you know, that we need to get a supply chain that's broadened outside of the Chinese sphere, uh, to me, that does spell money's got to come there. It does spell uh, that there is opportunity. So uh, I guess I'm just keeping my eye open for some of that as an investor. That's right. And there's a few different ways to, to be involved in this because there's the actual miners themselves. There's the explorers looking for things. The guys mining uh, current deposits, which it's a very short list. But there's also a group of companies that is looking at technologies, how to process the, uh, get the rarest out of the ground and into a um, a usable metal form. And so some of those companies, that is a hard and tall order to do that. But if they can figure that out, boy, that would those technologies would be uh, very valuable. You mentioned just a a bit of change about the flow through, but the point there is that money might be coming into this sphere. Are you seeing that, at least even anecdotally? I mean, you're well connected there. Are you seeing the interest pick up from bigger investors? A little bit, actually, we are. And not so much from because of the government benefits, because a lot of the funding for exploration, you know, Canada's a world leader in exploration. Um, but we explore all over the world. So those benefits are just for Canada. Internationally, the reason we're seeing a bit more investment coming into this area is because you're getting people twigging to the fact that these things are so rare, they're going to be in so demand, the prices skyrocket, and they see an opportunity for really good economics on, on projects. So that, that's, you know, it's as usual, it's the free market that drives the investors more than anything. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to have a chance to chat with you, to leave people with that, that, I mean, again, you can't do the transition renewables, EVs without it. We don't have it. 
China does, there's an opportunity because <laughs> the demand is going to be there. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to just put you on the spot, Martin, and say we got to visit again as this sphere uh, continues to evolve and develop. Very few people like yourself been involved for over 20 years in this. So I uh, really appreciate you finding time to share your perspective. Well, and because it's such an odd area, there's all sorts of little issues like, you know, the, one of the batteries used in hybrid cars is the nickel metal hydride battery. The hydride is actually all, the metal hydride is all rare earth elements. And so they don't even call it that. They keep it kind of quiet. So people don't even know that. But there's all sorts of tricks to this thing. And I'd be happy to come on again sometime and, uh, and talk further details about it. Uh, well, I would love that. Thank you for finding time today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Michael. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Right now, according to a new report by Capital Economics, more than 80 cities in China are battling with high levels of COVID infection. That's 60% more when compared to Shanghai's lockdown. I mean, the economic importance obvious. I mean, given the 80 cities are responsible for half of China's GDP, 90% of its exports. This past Wednesday, almost 30,000 locally transmitted infections were recorded, surpassing the previous record from last April when Shanghai did have their two-month lockdown. I mean, daily infections in Beijing more than tripled in the past week to about 1,600. The bottom line is that China's zero COVID policy has not worked because it suppressed natural immunity as one example, while the communists themselves relied on their own vaccine. You know, you remember the one that our federal government tried to obtain in May 2020. And when that fell through, because the communists refused to ship, without telling us, by the way, that's when the federal government went to Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Thank goodness that deal fell through because the Chinese vaccine is not very effective. But here's the shocking part that defenders of the lockdown don't want to talk about. And that approach has been widely discredited now, but you'd never know it in Canada. But I'll just remind you, though, this is before the pandemic. A few months before, in September 2019, John Hopkins' study was entitled Preparedness for a High-Impact Respiratory Pathogen Pandemic. Well, it concluded in quotes, in the context of a high-impact res respiratory pathogen, quarantine may be the least likely non-pharmaceutical intervention to be effective in controlling the spread. World Health Organization, by the way, did a similar study, and they agreed. They said forced isolation and quarantine are ineffective, impractical. And when the Chinese was deciding whether to actually lock down Wuhan province, it was in January 220, you know what Dr. Anthony Fauci stated? In quotes, whether or not it does or does not is really open to question. Because historically, when you shut things down, it doesn't have a major effect. Yet within two months, Canada decided to lock down. And the results are summed up by Simon Fraser University's Douglas Allen, in quotes. An examination of over 80 COVID-19 studies reveals that many relied on assumptions that were false, which tended to overestimate the benefits, underestimate the cost of a lockdown. He went on to state, it's possible the lockdowns are going to go down as one of the greatest peacetime policy failures in Canada's history. Well, no wonder we don't want to talk about it. But what's going on in China is just reinforcing that point. We can see the economic fallout, of course. And the social disruptions is evidenced in China today. But seemingly everywhere else, like Canada, the devastation to people with intellectual disabilities, the impact on child learning, the increase in domestic abuse, addiction, 
Well, everywhere else that seems to be acknowledged, but we're not talking about it here. The lockdown approach everywhere else is discredited. But the serious aspect to note is that in Canada, the no questions allowed approach is still in evidence, at least where lockdowns are concerned. And yet we look at the results today in China and the impact is profound, not just in that country, but that's probably the major fly in the ointment of economic recovery globally. I want to bring in Ozzy Jurek right now. There's so much to talk about, you know, in the real estate sphere. And part of it is rising interest rates, of course, having an impact. We've got massive amounts of uh, newcomers coming into the country. They got to live somewhere. We've got government sort of addressing uh, several things. They keep talking about affordability for the last 50 years, I think. Uh, you know, obviously no results there, but talking about rental housing, it's a big mismatch. Ozzy, I want to start just with one thing. I was looking at the in, in, uh, inflation numbers, of course, as everybody seemed to. And I look at that rent number, you know, the cost of shelter, which includes, hey, what are rents doing? Well, I think that's probably maybe the most inadequate number in terms of representation, because it certainly depends where you live. You know, you, that's a broad average number. I'm not criticizing StatsCan for it. I'm just saying we shouldn't make uh, too much of it because I'll tell you, if you're in Toronto, you're in Vancouver, other major urban centers, you're seeing rent go up a lot more than, say, 4 or 5% as is being recorded. Yeah, you're right. And there is a national rent report from rentals.ca uh, which shows that the, the average rent rose 11.8, so 12% year over year in October in Canada to an average of just under $2,000 a month, and that's up a full $210 from the same month last year. So we've seen a huge increase right across the board. And it's they're saying that the unprecedented growth in rents underway is broad-based across Canada, with most market reporting double-digit annual rent, rent inflation. So it's not just Vancouver, not just Toronto. Of course, they are higher, but it's right across the country. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking of somebody renting in Toronto, renting in Vancouver, going, what? Only 12% even, if you yeah. know what I mean. Like, it would still be higher than that. And, and, I, and I, you know, that adds, obviously, I'm the big one who says, hey, I look at the inflation number, fine. But what I really want to know is about my food, my gas, or other uh, energy products, heating oil at this time of year, diesel this time of year, uh, you know, and food, uh, and sorry, and shelter. Well, that's what really counts. And even though we still have a, the last number was 6.9% inflation rate, I think it's much higher than that when you just break it down, depending on your live. And again, by nature, they're broad-based statistics. But uh, even at 12%, I think there's people in the greater Vancouver area, Toronto area, Montreal to some extent, uh, you know, sitting there going, gosh, I wish mine had only gone up that much. You know, so that's one of the big things. Um, I want to come to a couple of other things. So is it where, oh, well, let me ask you this, because... I'm going to get into in just a second about the availability of rental units, but maybe just a quick primer on what a strata unit is when we talk about the different types of sort of condos. Yeah, the point is that we're getting more and more into rental units. In fact, it almost looks like we're turning our nation into, into renters and that, that we simply have to have the, the place for them. So one, one way to do that is to have property that's owned via a strata title ownership. That means you own your property right into the middle of the floor and the walls and the ceiling, or you could own it through a co-op where a whole bunch of people buy a building together, the co-op owns it, and they literally practically own shares in the association. 
But all of those, whichever met method we use uh, through the Land Registry Act, uh, land, land Titles Act, both ownerships have to pay a fee for the common areas. And so the, the fees are set really by the strata corporation or the management of the corp. And so they set rules and regulations and bylaws such as rental restrictions, etc. Okay, so uh, every government has been, as I said a moment ago, every government's been talking about affordability or rental or everything else in the get-go. So I'm fi fascinated when I go to different areas of the country and I see which governments are doing what. And so let me just go to British Columbia for a second, because, again, all of these things could be uh, the foreshadowing what's to come in other parts of the country. So, you know, the B.C. government has now introduced something called the Housing Supply Act. Uh, where they remove strata rental restrictions. Yeah, the Housing Supply Act, it's actually going to be a sort of an edict towards municipalities to do a better job to, uh, to establish housing targets uh, with goals, goals and so on, and they have to have a five-year plan. But what's sort of interesting, they're also removing the strata rental restrictions. So as I said earlier, a strata management or strata corporation can set for instance, that only owners live here. Well, they want to take that out because that means that right now we have a whole bunch of units owned by owners that can't live there anymore for some reason. And so removing that would actually add it into the rental pool. And therefore, the idea is that we have more units for rent. And that's quite true, Mike. Yeah, but so they'll remove those restrictions. I think, uh, you know, for if you're a 55 plus building, I never know how they come up with that kind of a number, by the way, why old people don't want renters, who cares? But my point, my question to you is, Ozzy, if, if, yeah, I agree with you that, of course, this could create a whole bunch of new rental move, uh, units coming on the market, but won't it raise the price of the units too? Won't it become more attractive for investors uh, at the same time? Yeah, and that's the fun part. I mean, I mean, I don't blame governments. Everybody's trying to do stuff. But what the result is, if I was an owner of a unit, I can't live there for some reason, and they won't let me rent it. The strata says no, no tenants. And now the government says, let's make it free. I say, yoo-hoo, I put it on the market. Before, if I had to find an owner, there was be a much lower price I could get for the unit. Now that it's actually a rentable investment, I can attract an investor who pays more. So this will actually increase prices. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, it's just another example. You know, so if you're on the affordability bandwagon, you sort of go, well, that's not a good rule. And if you're on the, I need rental housing, you're happy. But it just shows that it's a lot more complicated than sort of simplistic solutions. There, there are a lot of consequences here. And including one here that also comes through that, again, it's going to be appropriate across the country, is that it's really interesting uh, in that legislation out in BC, it acknowledges that provincial governments can only do so much. Federal governments can only do so much. They need the help of municipalities. So they sort of address that directly. Yeah, and uh, I mean, as you say, we have three levels of government that literally should put them all in a room and nobody's allowed to leave until they came up with a decision. But yes, the, the, new, uh, the new target is that municipalities should have the targets and build continuously to those targets. And then uh, it will. So the next, the first thing is about eight to 10 municipalities will get targets set by the governments. We don't know what it is. We don't have any details. And every other municipality must have a, will be evaluated in, a, in five years as to how the, whether they have a plan and how that plan is working. Um, it'll be interesting to see on whether they actually get the three levels together because there's no edict, there's no law, no real rules and regulation, no bylaws. So 
it's an idea. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, until they sort of get fleshed that out, uh, you know, uh, the kindest thing I can say is it won't make much difference. There's other adjectives I could use. Uh, Let me just also talk again, when you look at that stuff, Ozzy, there's other areas that seem to be missing here that, again, we may see them adopted, uh, you know, in Alberta, maybe may adopt it in Ontario, but there'll be other target areas. What jumped out at you in that way that you sort of think, hey, wait, wait a second, where's this? Well, to me, it's, a, it's an effort. But we have to understand the new premier was also the housing minister. So we could have done this, you know, for the last five years. So, so we are, we're looking at a little political gamesmanship here. But there's also no real commitments for all of the other things they're talking about. There's no commitment for legalizing secondary suites. There's no commitment for allowing home builders to replace a single family home with up to three units. All of these ideas have been floated, you know, in the past. But there's no real... There's no nuts and bolts. This is the new law and this is what you need to do. These are all either missing altogether, not covered, or they're just, you know, you have to wait for the details. But your, your point's very well taken. If the goal is to increase the number of rental units, then you'd think that legalizing secondary suites would be, you know, something that they'd really push forward on. And, uh, and the other side, of course, again, you're down to the municipal level also, is allowing home builders you know, in, in major cities to replace a single family home and increase the density, you know, up to say three units, you know, in the same size lot, et cetera. I mean, I'm just saying those are the things that, uh, I mean, you know, this was just a step, but it certainly isn't the be all to end all. And just a reminder, as you go across the country, when you have this rental shortage, and again, my big stat is 1.5 million newcomers coming in over three years have got to live somewhere. So those things must be addressed. Otherwise, it just dooms this to be more talk, less effective, you know, the same way we've been doing it for about, you know, seriously, 30 years we've been talking about affordability. Yeah, nobody says it's easy, but my God, we, we simply must come up with solutions. People will be here and we want them, but they have to live somewhere. Absolutely. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. And a reminder, go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca, Ozzy Jurek there. You get a free newsletter every week, uh, He's a great guy. All you have to do is throw in your uh, email address, ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk. I got Victor Adair on the line with me, Victor. Vic, I was sort of sitting back and watching. I mean, the market moves by what people perceive is going to happen. You know, I mean, they don't wait till after the horse race unless it's a shock. So I'm just sort of fascinated that, you know, we get out of the pandemic or into the pandemic, big negatives. I, 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 this uh, maybe I'm just talking personally. The rally's probably been stronger, not that I anticipated, that I even recognize. I still feel worse than maybe I should. Well, you know, to go all the way back to COVID, uh, following the COVID, we had a tremendous rally in the stock markets. The Dow was up 100%. The Toronto market was up 100%. The, the NASDAQ, uh, you know, with tech stocks and everything, up 120%. But since about a year ago, uh, when the Fed began to raise rates, uh, the stock market has trended lower. Now, the NASDAQ got hit much harder than the Dow. Uh, the Toronto market didn't roll over until this, this spring, you know, the energy aspect of the Toronto market. But here's the thing. In the last, uh, well, let's say since the October lows, we've had a bounce back in the stock market and we've had the U.S. dollar go lower, and we've had bond yields come down a little bit, 
and it's really all been about, hey, you know, the Fed's probably going to slow this rise in interest rates and or stop. So, you know, let's go. Well, it's interesting also when you look at the different indexes, we should sure, sure see where the damage is. I mean, far worse. And maybe that's, again, why it's so top of mind. I mean, all those big leaders, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Amazon, uh, you know, and all of those sort of more junior tech stories that didn't have earnings to back them up. I mean, that index is the one that hasn't recovered anywhere near like maybe the quality stocks in the Dow, even though there is some overlap, of course. Yeah, not not a lot of overlap. I mean, the Nasdaq is definitely weaker than the Dow because of that. The, the small caps are weaker because a lot of the small caps didn't have uh, actual real vibrant businesses. I mean, I look at some stocks and one that I do watch is Caterpillar Tractor. And if you look at that stock, you say, hey, baby, there's no recession coming. I mean, that thing and, and John Deere, is similarly, those stocks have been just going up very strongly. The industrials would would not lead you to believe that there was a recession anywhere in the on the horizon. So there's been, as we've talked before, that the inside of the stock market, it's not a monolithic thing. There's all kinds of things in there, but certainly some of the big cap stocks here have just had a great rally. I mean, the Dow, after being down over 20%, I guess, at the October lows, is only down about 8% from the all-time highs we had in January of this year. So the, smart, the stock market, in my view, in a word here, has been kind of exuberant, you know, as, as they've kind of got this idea that the Fed, which has sort of been their biggest enemy for the last year, is now going soft. You know, it's and again, it's a quiet week. You had American Thanksgiving, you know, which usually is almost a four-day holiday you know, for a lot of people. So it's been a little quieter. I'm going to be interested to see, though, a further reaction to all the reports, as our shocking stat alluded to earlier, you know, the record rise in COVID cases out of China, because that's also been part of the scenario, is that China is going to reduce, release their lockdowns or, or reduce them, et cetera. That doesn't seem in the offing when you literally this past week hitting record cases. Yeah, China, let's say how that shows up in crude oil, for instance. I mean, we've seen WTI has been trending lower here the last couple of weeks. Part of that might be, oh, you know, there's a recession coming. Maybe there's less air travel and so on. But if you're trading crude oil, you can't take your eye off what's going on in China. And for sure, the, the lockdowns, which look like maybe we're going to ease, you know, two weeks ago, now look like they're going to be tougher than ever at, with the case counts going up. And that means, you know, less demand for energy products and so on. And the whole commodity uh, complex here is, is, uh, is weaker than it's been over the past couple of weeks. What about uh, things like the Santa Claus rally? I just want to get that in there because, you know, who's not in the holiday spirit? Just kidding. But, you know, the market, you know, because I kind of figured after you get through the, uh, you know, the American Thanksgiving week and you get into, you know, December, obviously, the first sign of strength in stocks somebody's going to say it's a Santa Claus rally. So I just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, well, certainly uh, seasonally, uh, November and December are, are strong. And if you go back over the last 20, 30 years and take the average, you know, certainly 2008 wasn't that case. But, you know, for the most part, November and December are strong. So he, we're fighting that if we're saying, hey, maybe the market got ahead of itself. There's also strong corporate buybacks here scheduled through the end of the year. I mean, as always, Mike, there's positives and negatives to any point of view you've got. I'm just thinking 
with the, the, the strength of the rally we've had off the October lows here, which is kind of very much living on the hope that the central bank is going to ease off, might have got ahead of itself, you know, as, as markets do when they try to price things in. The stock market generally, and this is very gross of me to say this, but the, it's generally more exuberant either to the downside or the upside. You know, when it's going down, everything's hopeless. When it's going up, everything's wonderful, you know, like that. I think, I think that Howard Marks said that in one of his books. Yeah. Well, as I say, that's the environment. It's, again, all about inflation, all about interest rates, all about people's assumption. And as I talked earlier with Michael Levy about this, uh, the other thing I see is I think there's a bias about they want to be buyers. You know, you look into I listen to a lot of or read and listen to a lot of the sort of the popular American TV shows or, or uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And they always want it to be a buy. They, they, I'm serious. I think they want things to go up. So there, I think there's an optimistic bias in that. I, I don't think that's what uh, Jerome Powell said, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There is a bias to want to find a buy. You know, you mentioned China there, and that, that brings this idea to my head. One of the things that could dampen the enthusiasm in the stock market would be the prospect of a recession. And certainly there's that possibility there. We've seen some big layoffs from some of the big leading tech companies. One that's a little bit below the radar, I think, is uh, there's a potential for a rail strike here uh, the first week of December. The unions had voted previously. Now one of them is, is, is not agreeing. And if one of several unions there go on strike, then the rest of them have said, we will, we will honor that. And there won't be any trains moving around in the United States. Well, now I'm probably exaggerating it, but you know, something like that could trigger a recession. Uh, credit card debt is at all time high. So retail sales have been strong because people are, you know, using their credit card to buy stuff, maybe stuff they don't need. So We'll see. You know, there's this the potential of a headwind there of of Powell remaining hawkish. And if there's prospects of a recession coming, then I think the exuberance in the stock market here could be challenged. Well, you'll be there to chronicle it on victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, thanks for taking the time. Go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and it's straightforward. I'm talking about the fallout of FTX, the crypto trading platform, with co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried issuing another apology for what virtually everyone now calls a $32 billion scam. Well, not as political allies or as regulators, uh, who's got a lot of explaining to do, by the way, and certainly not Bankman-Fried himself, whose defense is incompetence, not criminal intent, although as more details surface, that's increasingly difficult to believe. I mean, there's still more to unravel and more fallout to come as big name investors, institutions, celebrities, millions of regular people write off their investments and try to explain their role in the debacle. What we know is that Bankman-Fried has lost $32 billion through FTX and a huge number of related companies. The companies took billions in taxpayers' money, handed over user data for political purposes, and became arguably the best-known proponent of what's called effective altruism, with his grandiose promises to donate his billions to worthy causes. I mean, come on, just mentioning the letters ESG, along with other woke jargon, plus $39.8 million in political donations and numerous celebrity endorsements, well, that was enough to have 
the due diligence shelved for major institutions like the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, many others. I mean, it certainly was enough for the New York Times, whose puff peef on Bankman Freed matched the superficiality of Tom Brady's and Kevin O'Leary's endorsements that helped suck in millions of regular people. I mean, you want a goofy? How about this? This is after FTX declared bankruptcy, when many of the details of deceit and questionable, maybe illegal activity were known. The Washington Post still ran the headline, FTX Collapse Dooms Founders' Efforts to Prevent Another Pandemic. Wall Street Journal ran the headline, The FTX Founder Pledged to Donate Billions. His firm's swift collapse wiped out his wealth and ambitious philanthropic endeavors. I mean, it never stopped. Another headline, Sam Bankman-Fried's plans to save the world went down in flames. As arguably the biggest name in crypto, Michael Saylor, he's the executive chairman, founder of MicroStrategy, sums up some quotes. Sam's counterfeited billions in tokens via securities fraud, inflated that by billions more via accounting fraud, sees billions from customers by banking fraud, corrupted the establishment with dirty money. It's incredible how easily he sold his BS about philanthropy should be a source of deep embarrassment. You know, the lawyer overseeing the liquidation of FTX was also in charge of liquidating Enron. He summed up Bankman Freed's company saying in quotes, I have over 40 years of legal and restructuring experience. I've been the chief restructuring officer or chief executive officer in several of the largest corporate failures in history. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. The goofy, two weeks and counting, and as many others have said, Bankman Freed's not in handcuffs. Instead, we're going to push off a congressional hearing till December. Instead of sitting in a jail cell, this is a beauty. The New York Times is featuring Bankman Freed at their deal book summit at the end of this month. Tickets are $2,499. He's being featured there. I wonder how many people lost a big chunk of their life savings in FTX. How do they feel about that? Well, no matter. The executives of the New York Times don't know any, don't know any of them. But the great smack in the head to the progressives, politicians, media, who embrace Sam Bankman-Fried, is that he says it was all an act. Last week, he stated that environmental, social, and governance, ESG investing, is a fraud. And so was his progressive public posturing. In an interview with Vox's Kelly Piper, Kelsey Piper, referring to his philanthropy act, he stated in quotes, it's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who got effed around by it. It's a dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shillabiths and so everyone likes us. He now says in quotes, in the future, I'm going to care less about the dumb, contentless, good actor framework. What matters is what you do is actually doing good or bad, not just talking about doing good or using ESG language, end of quote. Come on, virtue signalers everywhere are feeling faint hearing that. Faculty lounges and teachers union executives are shaken to the core. Gosh, they're probably wearing black armbands at the CBC. Yeah, lose tens of billions? Okay, but how dare you say what matters is what you do, not just talking about doing good or using ESG language? But that was all it took to perpetrate a $32 billion scam with virtually no scrutiny. Miraculously, he's not in jail. Why? Political friends? Regulators embarrassed? Well, who knows? 
But what's clear is that judging by the reaction in the progressive universe, Bankman-Fried's actions pale in comparison to Elon Musk pushing free speech on Twitter. Let me just finish by saying I really appreciate it when you tell your friends or families to tune into Money Talks or join us on Money Talks tweets or maybe Michael Campbell's uh, Facebook, uh, Money Talks on Facebook. I, I do sincerely appreciate it because I think the more of us who are informed on a variety of issues and we include a lot of stuff that you're not seeing or hearing elsewhere, I think that's important and I'm glad at least some of you do too. Hey, I also want to remind you, speaking of important, I'm excited about this because we're finally back live and in person at the World Outlook Conference. And this is uh, what, uh, if you're listening, Sunday night is the end of the early bird special. So you want to take advantage of that. That's Sunday night. So depending when you're hearing this, you've got a few hours left. Tune into it Sunday night, the end of the early bird special. And again, February 3rd and 4th, live Western Bayshore. Just a ton of great people are going to be with us. I'm really excited about the roster that's coming this year. And there's, come on, there is no shortage of things to talk about. I am absolutely solid in my prediction. I have not wavered a bit that if you thought 2022 was wild. I think 2023 is going to be more so. I think we're going to have panics. I think we're going to have uh, unravelings. I think we're on way to a sovereign debt crisis, which we've already seen the beginnings of. All of that stuff, you must protect yourself. So that's February 3rd and 4th. End of the early bird session. Easy to do, though. All you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and sign up. mikesmoneytalks.ca and I know Victor will be there. Ozzy's going to be there. Tony Greer's going to be there. Kevin Muir is going to be there. we got Greg Weldon. The list is a long one. I'll be chatting with Martin Armstrong, and he's got a lot of important stuff to say. So as I say, I think this stuff is absolutely invaluable. We'll also have, of course, with Ryan Irvine, Aaron Dunn from Keystone, we'll have our annual World Outlook Conference small cap portfolio that's never failed to deliver double digits. Not a guarantee going forward. The world can change. But boy, I like our chances after, gosh, over 12 years of doing the same thing, producing double digit returns and much better than that at times. My point is, hey, I hope you join us. Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca. Click on join us for the World Outlook Conference. And in the meantime, I really do sincerely hope you have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.